All right, welcome everybody to this week's RFRX. I'm Kara Griffin, I'll be your host this evening, and uh, it's just me being your host this evening because uh, as you may have noticed from the uh, ad for this week's episode, several familiar faces are going to be here as guests for our panel discussion this evening. So I am super excited to get to chat with all of them and all of you as well. So I guess we'll uh, just get right down to it rather than having banter back and forth with myself and myself. Um, but y'all know the drill. We're going to go into the discussion and let me introduce our guests this evening. We have uh, starting out with us, Dr. Daryl Ray who is the founder and president of Recovering From Religion. He's been a psychologist for over 40 years and is the author of four books, including The God Virus, How Religion Infects Our Lives and Culture. We have an episode about that one. And Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. We also have an episode about that one. Dr. Ray has been a student of religion most of his life and holds a master's degree in religion as well as a bachelor's degree in sociology, anthropology, yay, with a doctorate in psychology. And next up, we have Gail Jordan, who is an estate planning attorney and former Southern Baptist who left the faith years ago when her then teenagers began asking questions she could not answer. Her research led her and her children into the light of reason and rationality. And years later, she still feels the effects, both positive and negative, of that dramatic shift in perspective and attitude. And it's this sympathy and compassion that drives her to reach out to help others navigate the emotional and physical process involved in leading one, leaving one's faith and she serves as the executive director here at Recovering From Religion. Then we have Helen Green, who many of you probably already know. Uh, she has a degree in psychology, a lot of psychologists here, from the University of South Florida, works in human resourcing, and is an LGBTQIA advocate. She also enjoys spending time with her hubby and kids, loves sci-fi and horror movies, and is a huge Tolkien nerd. Yes. Um, she serves as support group leader and ambassador for RFR, in addition to frequently co-hosting RFRX, where many of you know her from. And then finally, we have David Teachout, another fan favorite. He's a mental health therapist and photographer focused on teaching how creativity intersects with mental flexibility and working through the inevitable difficulties in life. David grew up as a Christian fundamentalist, attending Bible college and receiving a bachelor's degree in theology and psychology. During his studies, David deconverted and has been on a journey of more deeply appreciating the many nuances of humanity ever since. David has a master's degree in both forensic psychology and counseling psychology, and is currently at work on a doctorate in clinical psychology. David has been actively working within the field of psychology as a therapist, social worker, advocate, and subject matter expert for over 15 years, and a frequent guest on our show as well. So welcome everybody i am so excited to have y'all um also we have um one of our other um support uh, online community leaders uh with us here in the chat um she goes by joy us or joy us and she will be interacting uh in the chat as well but not on camera okay so what are we doing here tonight with all these people? Well, briefly, just for anybody who has been living under a rock and doesn't know, in June, of, or who may not 
you know, be involved in these issues or does not live in the United States, no judgment. <laughs> but in June of this year, uh, the US Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which was a decision uh, they, they made in June that revokes the federal constitutional right to abortion. Uh, this protection had been in place um, since 1973, uh, but now several US states have already begun implementing laws restricting or eliminating access to reproductive health care for people who can become pregnant. Um, and this has been driven largely by the religious right wing uh, and is part of a larger platform uh, that has been stated to include other things such as reducing or eliminating access to birth control, gender affirming care, marriage equality, and so on. So we are here to discuss what's going on with this, what it has to do with religion, and what RFR is doing in response. So without further ado, let me turn it over to start with to Dr. Ray. Would you like to start us off with some comments on that? I think you're on mute. Okay. That, that works much better, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Kara. <laughs> so I want to start off by get putting a framework around this. I mean, because I lived through some of this stuff, and I very few people have. So I hope that I hope that when I give my little ten minutes here, you'll um, you'll have a perspective of why this has been, become such a big deal. And you know, whether you live in the United States or not, uh, I think most most of us. There's pieces of the history that we could plug in here. <clears throat> I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. And to keep that word Kansas in mind, if you're from outside the United States, it's right smack dab in the middle of the, of the continent. And during that, it's very conservative, it's very Republican. We have a super Republican. We have a super majority in our legislature at this point in time. But growing up in Kansas, it's always been conservative, but it's remarkably liberal in some ways. Uh, I was going to high school in Wichita in the 1960, I graduated in 1968, and I remember uh, throughout my high school, by the, from the time I became sexually aware, and then later sexually active, uh, I was about 17 when I became sexually active, um, there was always talk about abortion. It was like who people were whispering, oh, she had an abortion, or her father's a doctor and he gives her abortions, you know, it was... It was really interesting in that high school time, 1968, this is before Roe Ro v. Wade, which happened in 1973, but it was kind of com a common secret. And I nobody was ranting and raving from the pulpit about abortion. There was no churches out there with signs or crosses or anything. There was several abortion clinics within an easy drive of where I lived in Wichita, but we didn't have any in Wichita that I re recall anyway. Anyway, uh, so this was like, it's, that's the environment that I grew up in. It wasn't a big deal. Now, people weren't out in advertising, and there was some whispering, and there was some shame about it. But one of the main Baptist ministers in the, the whole town, it was kind of like the head of our whole congregation, or not the head, but the like the leader of all the other ministers, his daughter had an abortion and everybody knew about it. It didn't stop her from participating in the church. Uh, there were some people that were tut-tutting, you know, and shaming her about it. But it wasn't, it wasn't gigantic. It didn't ruin your life. It didn't make you feel terribly guilty and shamed. Um, now, I can't speak for that particular woman who had an abortion from that minister, minister's daughter. But I did know a lot of women and girls in that time frame who had abortions. 
and if you can imagine there just what it wasn't something you talked about but it was something that was kind of known uh, the churches didn't encourage it but the baptist church at that point in time gail being an ex-baptist ba baptist church even had an affirmative statement in their in whatever their governing documents were back in the 1970s so even churches weren't against abortion and even baptist churches weren't against it i got married in 1970 and of course so we were sexually active before we got married literally sexually active afterwards but we were very well educated about contraception we did all the right things and yet we still got pregnant so in 1971 we did a little research we found an abortion clinic up in kansas city which is 200 miles from where we lived and we decided to drive up we didn't tell anybody we were doing this we just drove up to kansas city we went through a very quick screening process about the only question they asked was um does this affect your mental health and she said yes so <laughs> okay come on in and uh she got the procedure done it was a medical procedure i mean she didn't feel great afterwards but she was back to normal within say certainly within 48 hours I, i'm not saying it was easy I, i'm not i i didn't go through it my wife did so I, I can't say much about her experience there but i know there was some residual shame on her part because her parents were very very conservative however we both looked at it and said we're in college we want to get our degrees a baby right now would blow both of us out of the water so we just made the decision we're going to have an abortion we'll have children later uh 1975 we had our first daughter 1979 we had our son and no big deal it was that it was that common it was that easy to go through life as a college student who had had an abortion and then continued with your education <clears throat> Now, 1973 comes along and Roe versus Wade comes out and which makes abortion legal across the whole United States. At that point in time, it had just been kind of hit and miss. Um, there were some states are more restrictive than others, but it was, it was still pretty common throughout the United States. But I want to repeat, there were no churches with crosses in their yards, no ministers preaching from the pulpit against abortion. It just wasn't happening. I'm in the most one of the most conservative states in the nation. And it's, I don't see any of it. So what I did see was during the 1970s, especially in the 1980s, I saw a rise of the guilt and shame the churches started preaching about, about abortion. Not all churches. It started slowly. It started mainly in the evangelicals and Baptists. I, in, in 2012, right about the time I wrote my book, um, uh, the God, uh, Sex and God, I, I was at a place where there were a whole group of, of Planned Parenthood. It was like a pa Planned Parenthood convention or conference in the same hotel that I was at. And I got to walk around and talk to all these Planned Parenthood people. And when they found out what I did, you know, what books I, I had written and all, they basically said, you know, we'd be out of business if the evangelicals weren't getting abortions. It was, it was like so, so common. Everybody gets an abortion in the evangelical church. But that, yeah, at the same time, they they preach against it. I, that was the first time I'd heard that. And it wasn't like I heard it from one person. It was like everybody in groups were saying, yeah, we ask about your religion when you come in. And we get tons and tons of fundamentalists and evangelicals. So uh, fast forward to 2022 and Roe v. Wade gets overturned by this incredibly out of touch Supreme Court. But it's a Supreme Court that was put 
uh, the judges were put there by fundamentalist evangelicals, people who are committed to their Christian religion and Christian imposing Christian ideals onto the rest of the nation. <clears throat> uh, mind you, it, it, that court, that same court didn't have these ideals back in 1973. <clears throat> that is how much has changed here. <clears throat> they overturned it. And Kansas, my home state where I live and was born, Kansas happens to be the first state in the nation to have an amendment, a proposed amendment to the Constitution that would basically outlaw all abortions. And so my partner, Barb, and I, but I'm, I'm going to give Barb the lion's share of the credit, decided she's going on a rampage. And she went out, she was protesting almost daily with her cohorts and other groups all over the state, from Topeka, all over this part of the state where I live, uh, and in Leavenworth County where we live. And they were even organizing bikini protests where she and some of her uh, other female friends would stand out in front of the courthouse with their, you know, vote no signs and in their bikinis and try to offend all the Republicans that drove by. Anyway, it was just, uh, they had fun with it, but they were, they were dead serious. During this time, over the last, just the last month or two, the Catholic Church has spent $3.5 million in my state of Kansas. Hey, we only have 4 million people in the whole state, and $3.5 million to pass this constitutional amendment. A vote yes was to pass the amendment, a vote no was to uh, ab ab abort the amendment, so to speak. <laughs> And uh, this this went on for two or three months. We've been campaigning on this, and we didn't know which, which way the which way the wind was going to blow. We were scared shitless that it was going to it was going to pass. But on election day, we as we were sitting and I was sitting in my living room. She was on her computer, and I we were watching the results come in slowly but surely. It looked more and more promising by the end of the night. We the the amendment was defeated 59 to 41. That is a huge, huge statement in one of the most conservative statement states in the entire United States. But I'm here to tell you that 5941 was not an accident. It was because a hell of a lot of people got out and worked their butt off. There are counties in western Kansas. If you draw a line right down the middle of Kansas, the whole western part of the state will always vote Republican. The eastern part can be mixed, especially in the high population areas. There were counties in the western part that had 45% of their votes for no against the, against the um, amendment. Most, almost all counties, the amendment performed better, better than Donald Trump. There were counties out there that voted for Donald Trump 75, 78%, and yet the vote no. Um, I'm, I'm, well, anyway, <laughs> there were counties out there that the, the abortion amendment did better than than Donald Trump did, which is super surprising. But it shows people are very concerned about this. Now, I want to close out my opening arguments here by just saying Kansas is just one of 50 states. Kansas is just one of like 212 countries on the United in the world. It's there's a lot yet to do here with respect to human uh, bodily autonomy, because it's not just reproductive rights, it's LGBTQ rights, it's trans rights, it's there's all sorts of things that are in danger 
And unfortunately, the way the United States goes can sometimes be the way other countries go. And I know that Australia has been infected with some evangelical bullshit. They had an evangelical, as, as Sasha will say, uh, they had an evangelical prime minister for many years. Anyway, um, to close this out, this means we've got to be out and active. This is a call to action. It, this thing, the, the results we saw in Kansas were not an accident. They were the result of a lot of people getting out and doing a lot of work. It's very emotional. It's very important though, because it's not just, it's, it's, our, it's our kids, it's our grandkids are gonna be affected by much of this. Anyway, I'm gonna back off here because we've got three other panel members who have got tons more to say. And I'm looking forward to hearing how this all works out and, and the questions that come in. Thanks, Kara. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Yeah, that's great opening and great way to, to set us up for our conversation this evening. And I think we have a couple of other members of our panel here who would love to talk a little bit more about what we are doing at RFR about this. I hear we have a new task force. Would uh, Helen or Gail like to speak on that? I'll jump in right here. Uh, mine won't be quite as personal as Daryl's. Thank, thank you, Daryl, for that kickoff and, and for helping us uh, bring it home and bring it down to a really personal level. Here at Recovering from Religion, we have week to week at the RFRX, as we share with you our mission statement, it's that we provide hope, healing, and support for folks who are struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. When the leak dropped in June that Roe might be repealed, Daryl and I immediately had a conversation, uh, and this is kind of a this is kind of a behind the scenes discussion that I want to share with you. Normally, uh, we do this we don't do this very public facing. We have our str strategy sessions, and we have our volunteer force when they have an idea, and we flesh it out and we develop it. But but we felt like it was good to let you know how we what we're doing about this and how we got there. So Daryl and I had an initial conversation. We brought the board in, we had a conversation and we recognized because of the nature of religious belief and the role that it's playing in women's reproductive health and the fact that restriction that, that abortion is going to be impacted, we found ourselves in the position that we recognize that we need to be prepared for this. We need to be prepared for this because if you can use your imagination for just a minute and think of who might be reaching out to us in the days ahead, in the days to come. One of the folks that may be reaching out, I'm about 10 years younger than Daryl, so I'm not quite in that age group, but we may have folks who remember what life was like before Roe v. Wade, before abortion was a guaranteed right in our country and the horrible suffering that took place when people were not assured of having safe and legal abortions. We may have those folks reach out because they're concerned about that and they're concerned of about the impact of religious belief on their on their personal autonomy. We might have um, folks like you, folks that are here uh, with us tonight who are on a journey, some of us at different points in our journey, but who see that bodily autonomy and the civil rights of each of everyone who can become pregnant and those who can make them pregnant too, let's, let's, leave, let's put everybody in the bucket, um, can be impacted by people's religious beliefs. Because make no mistake, this ruling, this repeal has everything to do with religious belief. And even those Supreme Court justices who, who 
were who weighed in on the on the majority opinion it is it is transparent that this is what this is about so we have all kinds of folks who may be reaching out to us um and lastly we might be contacted by pregnant people wherever on the spectrum they may fall because they need some support and they need some help and they don't know where to turn and recovering from religion as as our opening has said every time we have an rfrx we do try to provide resources we're not trying to get you the client or any client who reaches out to us to come to a conclusion, that's on you. What we wanna do is ask you reflective questions, provide some resources, tell you what, uh, you know, where you might find some of those resources, that kind of thing. So in an effort to be prepared for that, we decided to put together uh, a reproductive rights task force. So we have assembled a group, uh, the, the four that you'll hear from tonight on the panel are on that group. Kyra mentioned that we have, uh, Joy US is in the chat. Joy US does not share their face or their identity, so they will be participating in the chat. In the chat, there on the panel, we also have another couple of folks who I don't know if they're in the room with us or not that are working on securing resources and different ones. But we've we've put together this panel. We would like to do. There's a we have a couple of objectives, and I'll try to hit kind of the thirty five thousand foot view of it before I toss this on over to Helen and she can tell you a little bit more. But we hope to do. Uh, a social media and a podcast campaign so that folks know that we're here to provide resources. We're here to field those calls and those chats and to help folks find a support group or to find a secular therapist or to be a participant in our online community. So that's one of the things that we want to do. Another thing that we want to do is research the legal liability. This is a big deal. And I'll tell you, um, as an attorney, I reached out to some law school colleagues who are practicing uh, for all over, but particularly practicing in the states, for example, in Texas, where there is the, the bounty legislation that's horrible, <laughs> to understand the liability of not only the organization itself recovering from religion, but our individual agents, our agents who reside in Texas. I don't know if you know this, but it, uh, to try to summarize it, this bounty legislation allows citizens, if they find someone who has provided any kind of help to an individual who's seeking abortion services, whether that's financial help, an Uber ride, a ride to a safe place, it's support and encouragement. It's the, the legislation is written in such a way it could it could be such a large net. Anybody could be involved in that. So what about our agents who are residing in those states where that kind of legislation uh, is in place? What do we do about that? Well, I'll tell you the answer is we don't know yet. As I reached out to my colleagues, so many folks, it, it's just so new. This legislation, this repeal is seismic. We, we haven't felt it yet because it's only just now beginning. But we have uh, all kinds of potential for, for legal liability, not just for our agents, but for our organization. So we, we are researching what do we do about that. Internally, I'll tell you that we are not cavalier about our, about our volunteers. We care so much about them. We have a, a handoff system where at any time when a volunteer, a trained agent, 
takes a call or a chat, most of us come from the formerly from our formerly religious. We come from religious communities. And as well-trained as our volunteers are, we're also human beings. And we may face a call or a chat that hits some triggering issues. And we have a system in place where our agents can say, I need a little help. I, I need to slip away. And we have a we have a way to do that. Well, this is no exception. This and and it may not even be a triggering event. It may just simply be that the agent is not comfortable because of the state in which they reside to take a call or a chat where they are providing resources for those who are seeking some kind of abortion services. So we're looking to do that. We are uh, pursuing and researching our latest resources. These things are being developed as we speak. Um, the funding for abortion and how we get people across the state to a safe place and how we have accommodations for that and what that's going to look like. So we're researching all of those things. And the, and lastly, we're, we're trying to provide continuing education to our agents so that they can be prepared for that list of folks that I, that I mentioned that may reach out to us. We're trying to craft continuing education so that our agents can have a comprehensive understanding of what it, why it is we believe what we believe. You know, as secular people, you'll hear me say this, not just about this issue, but all of it. It is so empowering for you to have an understanding and an ability to express why you believe what you believe. It's the pride that we have now in being secular people, because when we were religious people, our answer was, well, we believe this because our parents taught us that. Our church taught us that. The Bible says that. And now as secular people, that is not good enough. And it's also, it applies here as well. So tonight, and I hope we get to it in, in, in some of our discussion, I, I want to empower you to have an understanding of why this issue is what it is, to be able to make a case, so to speak, lawyer talk, for why it is you believe that women and other people who can become pregnant should have this, should have the right to make the decisions about their own health care. So with that, I'm going to, I'm, I'm like Daryl, I'm going to try to pass the baton and we'll hear from another one of our panelists. Thank you everyone for being here and for giving us this opportunity to talk about this important topic. Thank you, Gail. That is great to hear. I am so glad that we have your leadership on this issue and I am so excited for the way that RFR is, is taking this seriously. Uh, and thinking about these issues, because I know it's really impacting a lot of people. Um, so thank you for that. Um, Helen, I know you've been doing a lot of your ambassadoring lately around this issue. Do you want to fill us in a little bit um, about what you've been up to and any of your thoughts on this? Oh, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when when I found out about this task force was starting, I immediately wanted to get involved because even though I am past the time of having children, um, I, I remember I grew up in the 90s and 2000s. I started becoming sexually active in the 90s where I volunteered at Planned Parenthood as a teen counselor. Um, talking to other, I was trained to talk to my fellow teenagers on um, safe sex, because sometimes it was too intimidating to talk to an adult, and I would hand out condoms, and um, and I would be with them, like if somebody got pregnant, I got to sit with them, you know, with a, with a peer, and just hold their hand, and just be a support system within the center, and I did that all during my teen years, which was a really big deal for me, um, especially growing up in a religious household where sex was not talked about. 
my parents did let me volunteer. They didn't know what I was doing because they wanted me to make my own choices, but they didn't really understand why I wanted to become involved. And I'm so glad that I did because I got the sex education that I did. I went on birth control when I became sexually active and I was able to go to school and have a future because I had access to birth control and I had access to sex education and those things helped me make informed decisions. And then after I had my children, especially after I had my son, I shut myself down from business. I am spayed like a cat <laughs> and I can't get pregnant anymore because I had access to reproductive care. And the, and the thing that we are facing now is we are not only facing abortion not being easily accessed to anyone that who wants wants one, but also access to reproductive care. That is another thing we are facing. And those are the things that is deeply, deeply concerning to me. Because if people do not get access to education, reproductive care, and if they need to an abortion, we are going to be facing a health crisis that we I don't think People have really thought about where we were going to face. And I'm sure those of us that, that were, no, I wasn't there, but because I was born in 77, but the people that were there before Roe v. Wade probably remembers a country where people had to be all sneaky, figuring out where they're going to have an abortion or illegal abortions and figuring out what states you could do it, what states you couldn't, and all these different things. And we didn't, and that was the time before the internet. So, you know, and those are things that we are going to be facing again. And I am, and I also, my oldest is non-binary and they have a uterus and are in college. And I cannot imagine if they got pregnant now wanting to create a, a future for themselves and they don't want to have children and being forced to have a baby because I live in Florida DeSantis just fired the attorney general because DeSantis wants to make abortion illegal in this state. And our attorney general is a was a Democrat. He didn't like the fact that our attorney general was going to defend the state constitution. Said that the attorney general wasn't doing his job and fired him. And these are the things that we are facing in the state. So I'm just saying that what we're facing right now is, and I, okay, I, I do stand corrected. Thank you, chat. But we are facing, but these are the types of things that we are facing that he is suspended. I'm sorry, fired, sorry. <laughs> but regardless of not getting my facts right, and I do apologize for that, but these are the type of things that you're gonna slowly see happening throughout the states as people slowly chipping away at rights within the state. And, that slow thing that's going to be happening because and that's the thing that scares me that's why i'm using my voice because i don't have a lot of political power obviously <laughs> i don't have a law degree um but one thing i do have is my voice and i'm able to use that voice to talk about these issues and bring them up and say hey you have a voice too you have the ability to be an activist whether it is you know, writing your senator, you know, going out to vote, protesting, donating to um, 
women's care, reproductive care, whatever it is, you know, that you feel that you can do, you can be part of the movement in, in a small way or a big way, however you want to do that. And that's what I'm trying to encourage people to do, to go out and actually do something about it. Because if you just sit on your hands, all these mofos that want to take everybody's rights away are going to take everybody's rights away. And what are you going to do? You're just going to be like, oh, well, you know, it is what it is. And nothing happens. And I know that the wheels of justice move through molasses. <laughs> it is slow and painful. And I am the type of person that I'm always like, well, I would have liked it yesterday, but I'll take it now because I'm impatient. You, I have to put on my big girl panties and actually do the work. And, and I saw my goal by being part of this task force and using my voice and getting the word out as much as possible, directing people to RFR for those resources that we are offering. So they have a resource to go to and hopefully encourage others to, if not be an activist and get out there and be a voice, but have resources to offer to people that need them or have access to those resources. So if I can say anything tonight about my little jobby job on the part of the Reproductive Rights Task Force is please find a way that you can help, find a way that you can be an activist either using your voice or your pocketbook or your vote. Please find a way for you to do, to do these things because nobody, we're not going to get this through, through this alone, y'all. It's not going to happen. So that's, that's my shtick. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that, Helen. And I know you have definitely been busy getting out there and using your voice lately and spreading the word and being active. And we so appreciate that. And I, I have a feeling we're probably going to share some links to some of the, the things you've done later this evening too. So thank you for being active and doing all of those things that you have advised us to engage in as well. Now, we have not yet heard from David, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I know um, you are a practicing therapist right now, and you mentioned that you have been hearing people are impacted uh, by this decision. Can you talk a little bit about the ways that, that this decision has impacted people? Yeah, no, it's... Um... It's impacted, I mean, I have one of my primary populations I work with is those suffering from uh, religious abuse uh, and religious trauma generally. Uh, so, you know, I work on the, you know, uh, therapy side, I work on the coaching side, depending on well, where the person is um, and the degree of, of help that they're looking for. And so, you know, many of the clients, you know, these right now are, showing up not only as um, uh, reflecting on what does this mean, you know, concerning their own ethics. Uh, because in some ways, what the Supreme Court did was put it right back into people's laps as to what do you actually mean when you say this? You know, you, you can no longer just simply mouth these platitudes uh, or virtue signal to your particular group, you you literally have to stand up and say with your feet, with your voice, with your vote, what it is that this really means for you. And the number of uh, personal stories coming out now, um, I believe actually Kara 
it was you or, or Helen, maybe both of you actually, were noting that one of the biggest differences between now and the when uh, Roe v. Wade happened is, well, the internet. <laughs> I mean, we already had plenty of stories breaking out about, you know, uh, you know, Lysol, uh, you know, being used uh, for as, as, as an abortifacent. Um, you know, uh, you know, th there's, of course, the, uh, you know, the coat hanger stories and, and by stories, I do not mean to diminish what was going on and just it's what was going on. And, you know, it's, you know, we have these experiences being reported, but the the notion of going viral, uh, as much as I have certain issues with that whole thing, um, it still serves a really good purpose when it, you know, gets the issues out there. And so people can no longer, you know, just simply say, well, I'm pro or I'm against. We now have to start dealing with the nuances of what does it mean in practice? And it's messy already. And, and it's going to hurt a lot of people. And so without getting too further down that path, you know, coming back to the you know, people showing up. And so people are questioning a lot of their ethics. They're questioning, um, you know, their own history with their religious faith, uh, the degree to which, uh, you know, this plays a role. Uh, I have people who are still, you know, you know, labeling themselves and believing themselves within Christian traditions, totally fine, who are going, this is not the faith that I signed up for. You know, what, what is this, you know, how does this work out? Um, to women in general going, how does this work regardless of uh, their uh, potential lived experience within, you know, uh, having pregnant, you know, being pregnant at all? It also then touches on, like I said, reproductive issues because of the subtleties, because of the nuances of how this, you know, pans out uh, in medical practices. So, yeah, lots of discussions. Um, I have to say, I mean, the first day the, the ruling came out, I probably had almost two full days of nothing but just holding space for tears. Like it, it was just, it, it, there was no, you know, the work was simply holding space uh, because it was such a, you know, slap in the face, uh, you know, felt as such. And so the continued help that is being needed. And I've already seen, you know, cases where the wording around abortion has started being changed. Uh, people are not referring to it anymore. They're referring to it as, well, I had a medically necessary procedure or something similar. Um, so that I think uh, it's due to, you know, uh, the fear, uh, legitimate or not, we don't quite know yet, um, but it can certainly, you know, it's a real concern over records being subpoenaed and so on being put out there as to whether or not, you know, you, you've declared that you've had one uh, or are seeking one. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And so, um, to kind of wrap this up, sorry, uh, is to kind of, you know, put put it into that context of just holding that space then for that uncertainty and going, yes, we don't really know how all of this is going to, you know, play out. And that in and of itself is leading to a rise in anxiety and uh, also depression and just questions around, yeah, what are we going to do moving forward? Wow, that's 
really telling that already in such a short amount of time, it sounds like there's been a noticeable impact on on the language that people are even able to use to describe their experience and, and the things that they're going through. That's very troubling to me. Thank you for pointing that out. And, you know, I want to throw that question out to the rest of the panel, too, in case anybody else would like to speak on how this decision has impacted you or other people that you know or or any coping skills or strategies that that you've been thinking about lately. Well, it hadn't affected me in this way, but we can already see that the ability to get medication across state lines, specifically abortive kinds of things, um, the, the, after, the day after pill and the week long, or whatever, the five day pill and other things, states are trying to enforce um, rules and regulations on just what you get in the mail. <laughs> well, that that's interesting because that's what it used to be like many years ago. You know, if you if you sent pornography across a state line, you get a prosecuted for it. You know, well, this is kind of states trying to enforce national level across state boundaries. And we're we're going to see this. And when you you look at birth control, there are states that are. We're, when, when I was a kid at um, 1963, my mother, uh, I had four four brothers, but my mother was just elated when the pill was invented. And she she was one of the first women in the United States to get the pill, I think. She she loved that. She, my lo mother loved sex. She may have been a fundamentalist Christian, but she loved sex. And getting that pill was just so, so wonderful for her. But she had to get her, she had to get her husband's permission. And she had to have a discussion with the doctor. And and that's, I mean, there were regulations around getting a pill. Now, seven or eight years later, my mother is a, um, a foster mother. My parents were foster parents for many years. And she gets a teenage girl in the house who is incredibly sexually um, uh, interested. And in, I mean, she's she was taken away from her mother because she was out of control in many ways. And all my mother wanted to do was go get her birth control because she didn't want this girl to get pregnant. And she couldn't get, because she, she wasn't married. You couldn't, at one point in time, um, well, I think it was 19, um, I can't remember, but at least in 1967, 68, a teenage girl, nobody could get birth control unless you were married in, in the state of Kansas. It was that simple. And there are states that want to go back to that. There are politicians that want to go back to that so anyway there there's lots of things i got nep nieces nephews and grandkids that are going to be affected by this because they're not getting good sex education and they can't get proper medical information or health care through their own doctor doctors in texas are going to be scared shitless to talk to somebody about abortion or birth control uh, or, or may may already be i don't know gail maybe you can talk to that issue well, I think I think that David's point was so precise. We just don't know what's going to shake out with this. We already we can imagine and we can speculate what's going to happen. And these are all scenarios that are not far fetched. All of these, and in fact, uh, the child, the ten year old child who needed to cross the state line in order to get an abortion, so that because she had been raped 
and the you know the whole other side was saying oh it's made up it's made up that doesn't really happen and those of us on our side are screaming this is exactly what happens and the problem with the restriction is even with these you know i i i um it's one of those things where i the the exceptions for rape or incest well that's better than nothing but i don't like to do i don't we don't want to be too in favor of that because it puts the onus back on the person you have to have been violated in order to be able to receive this kind of thing so so there's a there's a you know that's a double edged sword to say oh well we're grateful for that but at the same time that's not a good position to take and so i i think that's that's exactly what is behind the creation of the task force is to i i use the um I use a little bit of graphic language when we're talking with the task force that we need to be in a crouch. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared for what kind of calls are going to come in because as David said, if you, if someone tells you they know what's going down and how this is going to shake out, they do not know. We, none of us know. We don't, it's to me, it is so unsustainable what we have right now. This is absolutely unsustainable. This Texas bounty thing, unsustainable. You can't possibly, you can't possibly have enough law enforcement, enough, enough uh, judicial staff. You can't possibly enforce this. And then something like this ban across state travel. It's out. You know how many airplanes leave cities every day with people who can become pregnant and do, do you have to produce a false pregnancy test in order to do it? it's unsustainable but having said that so what is that going to look like we know exactly what it's going to look like it means lower income people people of color um bipoc all of these folks who have less resources are going to be the folks that are most affected by it as it always is in a capitalist society those at the bottom that experience the most financial hardship are going to be impacted first so we we already know that's coming but how it's going to shake out we just need to be prepared for just about anything that you can imagine is possible to happen with this so so Kara, i appreciate the question you know how has this affected us it, it's affected me by getting lost in my own head on how many people, how much suffering this can create in the lives of, of everybody that's going to be affected by this. So I, I don't know if the other panelists want to say something or if you, if you have another topic, but it's just, it's, it's in the early enough stages that we have, we have no idea exactly the impact that this is going to have. I wanted to pick up piggy back off of something Daryl said about Texas. Um, in May of 2020, so this was right before um, Roe vs. Wade got turned over, there was a woman in Texas and she was, her baby had died in her womb and she needed to have an abortion to get the fetus removed. The, ho the hospital that she was trying to go to would not remove the fetus because they kept stating that, well, you know, you're not at life threat any you know at that level yet and basically she had to become septic for them to remove an unviable fetus <laughs> and this was before rv way rv way got turned over <laughs> because that line of when is a mother's life in danger is hard to determine what kind of because it who's setting the law are doctors saying what this is our lawyers saying what this is our politicians saying what this is because that's what we're looking at and it was not because the hospital didn't want to do it they knew that this fetus was not viable it was not going to survive it, it was already starting to die 
and they were like, no, we can't do anything because she had to have certain symptoms. Basically, she had to have a fever. She was already bleeding and she's already had other issues, but it was the fact that she had to become septic before they would remove the fetus. What the hell is that? <laughs> And that's, and that's what's so scary about all of this because people are like, oh, it's a life threat, you know, and I'm not, I'm not talking about people here, but people are like, oh, it's a life threat to the mom. What is that line? And then also, is that going to cause irreparable harm to the mother, maybe long-term? We don't know the long-term consequences of these decisions on the impact of the person that's being affected by it. And that's what's really, really scary. This is a uh, this is a healthcare issue. Um, I mean, what you just said, Helen, is uh, some people would say that's an extreme example, but it's not because I mean it's extreme, yeah. But it, I live six miles away from the closest uh, hospital, and it's a Catholic hospital, and is supported in Medicare and Medicaid. Federal funds go to this hospital, and yet if a woman went in there with an ectopic pregnancy that she had to have dealt with or she needed her tubes tied or you know any other normal health care they have the right on religious grounds using taxpayer dollars to refuse that and then she has to get in an ambulance or get in her own car or whatever and go to another hospital a state hospital where they might or might not do that because you know we're a republican state i'm not sure if they can or not so it's uh it, it it's a health care issue that's much bigger than a 10 year old getting raped and needing a, an abortion. I mean, we all agree that hopefully that's rare. And, and somebody, whether they're septic or not, is that we hopefully that's rare. But for every one of those, there's a thousand other women who are having difficult issues that are become life threatening if they don't get them taken care of. It may not look serious now, but it, it can have life, life changing consequences. Yeah, that is that is just really scary to me. And, you know, the idea that, you know, this position would be called pro-life when what's written into law is that people's lives have to be put in danger in order to even receive health care. That doesn't sound like pro-life to me. That's kind of terrifying. Ugh. OK, well, I want to go back to another point that we talked a little bit about earlier, but I want to come back to this and, and see if y'all would like to comment a little more on this. You know, at Recovering from Religion, obviously our focus is on, you know, helping people who are dealing with, you know, religious related issues. Um, so I'm wondering if, if any of y'all would like to expand on how you understand this decision and the related healthcare access issues um, that it's connected to in relation to religion and religious fundamentalism. Like, obviously, we don't just get in politics, get involved in politics here to, to be in politics. We, we offer our services to, to everyone who's dealing with religious issues. So what is it about this issue that, that it really strikes you as this is a religious issue, not not necessarily a, a political one. Uh, how do we speak to that? I'll start, but I sure want to hear from the other panelists, and I'll and I'll try to be brief. I think what catches, I think what hangs up the religious community is the concept of a soul, this idea that there is a piece of us that's separate from our physical self, that after our death we have this 
nebulous ethereal thing with our memories and some part of our personality that uh that's when you believe that and you believe that that something survives your death and then it goes on to do something else live on another plane and they would use much simpler language than i'm trying to use they would say you have a soul and when you die and you go to heaven if you believe that and this whole concept that life begins at conception that this idea of a soul inhabits this blastocyst at conception that's their pro that's their dividing line and once there is a soul that's a that's a that's uh instead of us seeing you know this is a, this is a, this is a collection of dividing cells there is no central nervous system there is no uh there's no survival outside of the womb we see it in a rational scientific manner and and of course we value the adult person inside whose body this blastocyst is i and so and so overcoming that obstacle of there being a soul that's the that's their sticking point they that's why this is a religious issue and the idea that the language about life begins at conception i don't know if we have any any um of our guests are, come from the jewish faith the jewish religion jewish religion says life begins at first birth so so there's there's all kinds of religious ideas about you know when life begins i tend to think that that's a little bit that's framing things in their terms and i think that we get sometimes caught up in that argument i think it's a difficult argument to make but that's not the relevant argument i believe and i even i even say this i call this a red herring i think that that's irrelevant what is relevant is another person cannot use your body without your consent it doesn't matter if it is uh if it's a fetus that originated with my egg if it's a fetus that originated with your egg they can't transplant your fetus into my body without my consent because i happen to be able to be to have a uterus and can carry this to term they we don't do that if i have a blood type that can save another person even if it's not inconvenient for me i'm not forced to do that even if you think that's morally repugnant that i wouldn't lie on the table enough to donate blood to save another person's life in this country we support autonomy and uh consent and this is what this are in my opinion this is what this argument is about it's we don't allow that it doesn't matter if it's it doesn't matter the age of the person it doesn't matter the value of the person you just can't use my body without my consent it doesn't even matter if it's my own egg if it's if i don't consent to it then i have the right to be able to make choices on my own that is so contrary to this life begins at conception there's this soul present it's at 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 the moment that the sperm and egg connect that i think that's where i this is why i think this is where religion gets stuck on this and can't seem to overcome itself because of that very thing but i do want to hear from the other panelists and even in the chat uh to hear more input and more discussion about that well i think you know gail you bring up a good point concerning uh one because this is really so much of this does boil down to how is life conceptualized 
what is uh, in, in what is the kind of measuring stick? And that's going to come back to ideology. And, you know, and, you know, there have been some really great uh, quotes provided in the chat previously uh, that, you know, show that <laughs> even even evangelicals have not had this, uh, you know, this you know, this corner, uh, you know, this issue cornered for all time. I mean, we literally have we're back in the you know late 60s, early 70s, not really big a deal, even by people who were at the upper ends of you know uh, you know their movement. So, you know, this is it's the as elsewhere noted as well, it's like religion is like any uh, worldview or ideology, it's a means of organizing uh what we consider experience for the purposes of making sense to any of us. That's why we have political ideologies. It's why we have, uh, you know, ideas concerning family and so on and so forth. Even the notion of a self is a, is a organizing principle. Won't keep going there, but anyway, <laughs> you know, the whole, but the whole idea here is, is that we have these systems in place in order to try to make sense of what is uh, complicated. And, you know, I've spoken before about what fundamentalism is, is, you know, not necessarily tied to uh, religion per se, because there are definitely fundamentalist political ideologies, um, because at core, you know, I follow in the footsteps of, you know, thinkers like Eric Fromm and others who note that just at a biological level, human beings are really poor at uh, supporting freedom. We really, we really, really, really like to give up uh, ourselves to authority uh, figures and structures and so on. We, we, it's just our proclivities. And we just happen to be okay if it's the authority that agrees with us. Um, so, you know, what, so part of the issue here is, is that, um, and one reason why, when it even comes to, you know, the Dobbs decision, that as much as I, on one level, disagree with it, on another level, even though the ramifications of it are going, are already being felt, you know, doctor, even though doctors haven't been prosecuted quite yet uh, on, you know, under the new stuff, even though there's a lot of questions around it, decisions are being made. Women's, you know, uh, you know medical rights or, or, you know, medical procedures and care is being shifted because there's a big fat set of question marks now and people are rightly concerned over how this is all gonna shake out. And so in that way, um, you know, more in line with, you know, Ginsburg and, uh, and, and Alito even, in fact, I recently read an article in which um, the irony here is that Alito, uh, you know, quoted, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and yet she, in fact, may end up having the last laugh because he quoted her, noting that the Roe v. Wade decision seemed to, and there's a debate over this, but you know, I think it, at least there was a variable in it of stopping the evolution of this as a cultural debate in America. It allow it it, it created sides that people could just simply make up plaques and make up signs and never actually talk to one another. And so what we had is basically 50 years 
of people lobbying, uh, you know, platitudes at one another without really getting into the muck of what this really meant in practice. And as much as this is going to be awful and really wish this did not have to happen, but unfortunately history is just replete with lives uh, being lost and hurt as we try to figure out how these things work in practice. But now we actually have this. We have the capacity to be able to go, guess what? This is brutal. This is in your face. This is, you know, if you know, we get to the activism question and we need these, you know, the, these stories being told. I mean, that was the power of the Me Too movement was stories literally being put out there and going, listen, people, this is not just some kind of, you know, statement of, oh, well, you know, you know, that's just another, you know, uh, you know, she didn't like being, you know, complimented kind of dismissiveness that was often being put out there. Same thing here where it's like, oh, well, you know, the people who want an abortion are just those that, you know, don't want to deal with babies. Uh, no, that, that's literally not true. That's just not how, you know, most of these things, what's the, in fact, um, I'll share the article um, but it was uh, going through the, you know, pulling around people's ideas of, like, most people don't understand what 42% of unplanned, unplanned pregnancies end in abortion, that the vast majority happened in the first six weeks. You know, it, I mean, this is not, <laughs> that in fact, in, in, there's also a majority in which they occur by parents who already have kids. So the, they're not the, the idea that these things that abortion is being used as a uh, uh, you know a, a, as a way of birth control is simply a caricature that's not generally true. And now we have the time to be able to really you know put put that forward. Even in Indiana, so you have can you know Kansas happened, and now you have Indiana's law, which is from what I gather. Uh, they're the first, you know, state to truly, uh, you know, ban, um, which they went against their previous law, which was uh, that you could have an abortion up to, I think it was 20 weeks previous, and they've uh, undone that. And, but even then, they, you know, there was a minority that wanted no, uh, uh, no qualifications whatsoever on this law. And they couldn't do it. So, Yes, there is a concern over how this is going to get implemented, but even the law itself, they had to put in uh, for, well, okay, so there are qualifications for, you know, the you know, life of the mother and uh, when the fetus, you know, is already unviable and so on and so forth. So when it actually came to putting these things into practice, even the diehards had to go, we actually kind of have to put these things in there because otherwise we're not going to be able to do this. So, you know, it, it's this is all going to start getting, you know, washed out and all the more so for us to be active in having the conversations and being honest about how this is actually working out and getting past the, um, uh, the slogans and really start having, I mean, for that matter, shoot, have like half a dozen examples of actual people who have, who who you know point out that this is not a simple thing of you know conception equals life, like you know ectopic pregnancies is probably one of my favorite you know examples. How does this actually work, you know? Or what was it? Somebody else had noted that there's now uh, we've we've been able to create a uh, a fetus 
in I don't it obviously wasn't a human one, but it was a a different animal without the utilization of sperm and egg. Mm. Okay. <laughs> you know, suddenly these questions are going to get a whole lot more complicated and we should we we should actually celebrate those complications because it makes the the simplicities uh difficult to put into to uh, put into law. Anyway. I'm kind of piggyback off of that. Um I also want to point out that when you get into conversations with people, especially the pro-life people, you're going to get into I'm a lot of straw manning <laughs> and they want to lure you into arguments that are good. You're going to be arguing about like philosophy and you're going to be arguing about like, when is the fetus viable? And well, are you going to abort a baby within like the third trimester, you know, and decide you don't want it anymore because they want to engage you in those conversations because they want to ignore what you're actually talking about because you'll hear there's a lot of emotional language that are used in this conversation that you're killing babies you know women are murder you know we're murderers and blah 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 you have to ignore that and i know the natural instinct is to get defensive and being like you don't know what the fuck you're talking about and you start yelling you're it's not going to go well <laughs> i am telling you because they want you to get emotional they want you to become irrational because they they're using straw manning emotional arguments to draw you into a false narrative of what is going on and like david said actually have real stories about real people it, that have been through this issue it's even better if you have a religious person <laughs> that went through an abortion and was pro-life and then was backed up against the wall and guess what they had to have an abortion because guess what having a kid was not a good idea at the time or something really terrible happened to them and they had to do it because you know i wouldn't want to have the person that caused me trauma's baby wouldn't want to do that so you know these are the type of conversations that you have to kind of be prepared for and also too if you don't want to get drawn into an argument argumentative narrative don't be like, this is too emotional, this is too close, it's not going to go well, and no one to walk away. But if you do try to engage in these arguments, these straw men's, make sure that you have your steel man ready. Because it is because they, they will try to knock you down with emotional languages and using words that are going to cause anger and frustration to rise up and you, you got to be aware of those things because i've gotten into those conversations and then i ended up crying and screaming at the end of it because i was all angry and mad and i totally lost the point of why i was having the conversation in the beginning so you have to kind of go in knowing this of of what this actually is and also too that you can appeal to someone's empathy like the people that are pro-life they actually do care they they do care about children they do care about these things it's just the message got twisted along the way so a good idea is to appeal to their empathy appeal to what would they want for their own children what what ideally they would like to see for others you know and people that are facing these decisions you know citing facts is helpful <laughs> but i'm always go with the person's humanity 
because you're you're going to turn them over into that perspective easier than citing facts you know i'm um, talking about laws and all that type of stuff you want to bring it down to the personal and get them to think about what would you do what would you do if this was your child what would you you know and get them to start to think about it on a more personal level despite what their religious beliefs have told them because because no matter because everybody along the lines when you're religious or not when you're and you thought that you had a certain ideology and you thought there was a certain way that you were going to be and then when push came to shove you made a different decision that you thought that you would have and that's where you kind of that's where you want to get people to kind of think about the argument from that perspective yeah those are really good points alan and that's actually a great segue uh, kind of into uh, probably the last topic that we'll have time to talk about uh, this evening, We're getting close to the end of our time here, but I would like to hear from y'all um, about, you know, given all of the information and the impacts um, that, that you've all described this evening, um, how does this situation impact your work or your activism or even just, you know, any of our responsibilities to one another as human beings? Uh, what do you have any further thoughts on that? I know you've already discussed a little bit about the Reproductive Rights Task Force, but is there any more you want to say uh, on any of those things? I agree with Gail there in the chat. Absolutely vote. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, vote. Just, please vote. You know, please vote. <laughs> please go out. Um, and you know and and you know part of the you know conversation here is uh in which also noted and, and i agree with the uh the comment back about productive dialogue and and absolutely you know and but you know i will poke a little bit and know that often when we discuss you know productive dialogue is that we are using productive as a uh and i'm not saying this person is saying that but often when i hear it is that it's you know it's productive in the sense of well what they really mean is at the end this person believe you know agrees with me and you know it's like you know we it's a directional dialogue that we that is often what is wanted and and i would you know say that that's actually not what i want you know if any you know it's one of the reasons why you know tend to be a, a free speech almost absolutist is you know fall into line with um, uh, with um, uh, Jonathan Haidt's notion of no you know why I want you know free speech to be just fully out there because I actually want to know what people think. <laughs> I, anytime we you know give space for you know platitudes, anytime we give people cover for not being able to say what they think we are effectively hiding from the capacity for people to be challenged for new ideas to to you know take root um that uh you know uh, that you know <laughs> the nuances of how things actually work in practice i mean you know it's one reason why as much as i disagree with philosophically uh, you know, most particularly dualistic, you know, religious ideas is that there is not a one-to-one -one relationship between an idea and a particular behavior. 
we like to think so. We're like, well, well, this behavior was caused by that. No, <laughs> it just doesn't work out that way. We like to, you know, make post hoc rationalizations and make a story up as to why we did this. But we do things all the time that are against one or another idea that we may have at another point. Why? Because life is freaking complicated. <laughs> it's really, really difficult. And we want actually that to be front and center. Life is hard. It is difficult. It is not easy. It is not something that you can just simply, you know, go to a singular book and go, hey, this is all that matters. It requires conversation. It requires being uncomfortable. And it requires the humility to go, you know what? I might be wrong. And that allows us to, you know, have this. And that's the issue then that comes back to the, you know, healthcare issue is going, hey, what? It might be wrong. And it's a good thing to be a little more honest about that and not hide behind, you know, an authority figure or a structure in order to give yourself a carte blanche away from it. Yeah, good. Good points. And, you know, before we wrap up and go to questions, which we have a whole slew of, <laughs> are there any final comments or anything that that y'all would like to leave us with, including any links or resources or any place that you would like to refer people to for more information or support? Uh, yeah, I, I want to put in a plug for our resources tab. If you go to recoveringfromreligion.org, and we'll put, put these links in the chat uh, from time to time, and you click on our resources and you specifically go to abortion, you'll find that that's cross-referenced. We have a flood of resources. We're looking at new resources all the time. That will be helpful um, for you to have our, um, our agents try to familiarize themselves with that so that they're prepared, you know, with knowing what kind of resources that we can offer. And those, as I said, those are a real work in progress right now. I don't know if you followed uh, politics wise when uh, Congressman Matt Gates took on a, a young Latina teenager and was, I mean, she's an activist and she's 19. So that teenager is, uh, we've played that up a little bit because he did, he came, he came at her and she has since raised over $2 million for abortion, you know, for $2 million for abortion services. And so uh, that's brand new. That just happened in the last couple of weeks. So this thing has, uh, is, is organic. It has its own pace. And so check back with us from time to time on the resources and, um, We'll try to keep our website updated. I, someone put in the chat, and I'm grateful for that. I think Rob did that. We have a statement. Recovering from Religion has a statement on our position about that. So you might look at that. That's a real high-level statement. And then you can uh, do a little deeper dive by checking out some of the resources that we have. So don't forget to do that. Also, too, um, in your OC, make sure you know what the exact law is. <laughs> and what is coming up and things to keep an eye on um, because it it does change. <laughs> um, it changed here um, and it's changing across the state um, and, the, and what new amendments they want to add to that law um, to um, sneak things in because there's because they're sneaky, they're sneaky little buggers. So make sure you know exactly how the law is written and how and what is going through, and what exactly people are voting on. And if it um, looks confusing, it's intentional. <laughs> um, I'm sure Dr. Dal Reagan talked about how they used um, different wording in the vote in Kansas. They deliberately to confuse people. <laughs> yeah, the the and the pro 
uh, the pro-life group used the word vote yes to give women choice when in fact that was the opposite and fortunately it didn't fool if it fooled anybody it didn't fool very many because 59 percent voted any uh no anyway but yeah they were using the exact same language to say the opposite of what they really meant uh, the catholic church is right in the middle of it and uh anyway three and a half million bucks to confuse people is what it amounted to yeah so that's the only thing is like really understand the law if this is something you are voting on to really understand it before you vote on it because they're tricky sneaky bastards <laughs> you know so um become well educated on what's going on in your state and what's coming up for the vote and also look up like who was running for your local school board because again you know these people are going to be passing laws and your local government affects you more than the national so please make sure you know what's going on evening within your own county and that's it i'm going to get off my soapbox now <laughs> and the local school boards are dominated by conservative republicans are trying to get books out of schools that might educate kids good sex education cannot be found in school libraries if the republicans have anything to do with it Correct. <laughs> Agreed. Fair enough. And um, Helen, I know you had a couple of links and things to promote. Do you want me to put those in the chat? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, since if you want to hear me talk more about these issues with other people on podcasts, I've been on three this month. I was on Gala's Engineers podcast. I was on Left of the Valley and I was on the Atheist Alliance International podcast, and I'm going to be on two more coming up this month. I'm going to be on Neil the 604 Atheist um, on at this Saturday, I think the 28th, and then I'm going to be on Skeptic Hangout the 22nd or 23rd. I don't know. I'm bad at dates. <laughs> so, David, have you gotten a date for the one you're doing? <laughs> not officially yet okay no but that's all right we won't yeah, talk about that yet. if we don't have a date you can possibly tell us about it next week <laughs> quite possible <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, right. yeah. Yeah. so yeah um so like but yeah this if and also if you want to get involved please volunteer we would like help <laughs> we like help so if you would like to get involved you know go to our volunteer page on the website fill an application say hey i want to get involved and kick some butt so and be 20 percent cooler so join our task force people or just join just join recovering from religion and be 20 percent cooler because that's the goal you want to be like me <laughs> it works y'all i'm definitely cooler because that's I right i make I you cooler <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you all for all of your comments and your insights on this this is such an important topic and i'm really glad we got to have this conversation this evening and we're not done talking about it yet we have a whole big bunch of questions that we'll try and get through as many of them as we can we may not get to all of them but Hold tight, we'll do our best. Uh, but let's see, and I'll just put these, you know, questions to the panel. Whoever wants to to speak on each one, uh, please uh, feel free to do that. Uh, so, uh, one that we got is a little bit of a historical question, but I think it speaks to some of the topics we talked about earlier. Someone was wondering. Um, what was the motivation behind the whole anti-choice slash pro-life movement that started in the 1970s? Like what changed? How did we 
get here. Does anybody have the history on that that they'd like to share? I can say a little bit about it, but there may be other people know more. Uh, basically, the evangelicals got together, um, pol political evangelicals, uh, because they weren't happy with the way the culture was going. Remember, the 60s were pretty open and liberal, and a lot of things, positive things happened, like civil rights, like women's rights, like uh, women's, um, the ERA, um, a constitutional amendment that came real close to passing. And they didn't like any of that because patriarchal religions want to keep control of your sexuality and your um, and women. That's the main main focus of patriarchal religions. They got together, tried to figure out what what would work. Uh, there's a lot of things they they looked about, but they came to the conclusion. This is in the early 70s with people like Jerry Falwell, and they came to the conclusion that abortion might be the might be the place to focus and. As you know, if you've read my book, The God Virus, religions are always testing. It's like, uh, I know, David, you don't like going viral as a term, but I do, <laughs> obviously. Uh, that that, that uh, virus that we got, the COVID, is constantly testing the environment. It's constantly trying to find a way to overcome your immune system and break out. So you've heard about the notion of breakout infections. Well, that's what we had in the abortion. They found the weak spot in our culture. And there was a breakout infection it's over the last three, uh, 40 years. So that's what that's what got. That's why it succeeded. Their religion is like a virus. It's constantly it's got to replicate itself. It's got to get from my brain to your brain. So it's constantly looking for the weak spots in our culture. I mean, the title of my book is How Religion Affects Our Mind, Lives and Culture, because that's what's happening here. And it's, it's just a story that's been going on for thousands of years. Every religion has to do it. We're just seeing it before our very eyes. The, the, the mutation of the organism we call religion, from it's a parasite, and it goes from one brain to the next brain. And if you just you look at it from those perspectives, you can see that, wow, the, the evangelicals found something succeeded, and they're sticking with it all the way to the Supreme Court. And that was their goal. And they made, they've now achieved their goal. Yeah, oh, you're right. I know a lot of people who were single issue voters for, for just that reason, and they got together and they got what they wanted. So along those lines, several people have asked questions, you know, kind of along the lines of, well, what do we say when people argue back that, oh, this isn't religious at all, you're, you're being political. Uh, and for example, some people saying, well, the Dobbs ruling doesn't specifically say that they overturned Roe uh, because of of religion. So how do you how do you argue that? What do you what do you say to people? My I would pose a question. Then tell me how it's not religious. When five out of the six justices that voted for it were Catholic, and one's a lapsed Catholic. <laughs> I, that sounds religious to me. <laughs> So I don't understand how it cannot be religiously motivated or sexist motivated because it affects people with uteruses. Most of, and um, I'm not to disparage, you know, my LGBTQ plus friends. I'm not, but I'm just saying that it, the majority of the people that affect is women. But it, it's 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 also queer bias. It's it's sexist and queerist, and it's stupid and dumb <laughs> because it's religiously motivated because. 
religion wants us to be brood mares. <laughs> I, I have to stay at home, make sandwiches and pop out babies so I can make more Christians to go find this religious war that doesn't exist and create more than that is the goal. So explain to me how it is not a religious movement because even people that are religious, this is only 18% of the country that is completely pro-life. The rest doesn't want to see this, didn't want to see this overturned, believes in the woman's people's ability, the right to choose. So if only, why are only 18% of the religious people that are pro-life dictating the laws for everybody else? I'm just, I want to know. Because <laughs> if you have a good argument for this, I would like to hear it. That it's not religiously motivated. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. <laughs> well, I mean, I will note that yes, you know, about eighteen percent or so are are de facto like, you know, uh, against abortion at all. Um, that being said, depending on when you pose the question as to when abortion occurs you get a lot more nuance. I mean, simply asking, did you want Roe v. to return or not? Sure. I mean, you had about 57% or so they were saying, no, let's not, you know, return it. But when you ask, well, wait a minute, <laughs> when, you know, wh what are you okay with when it comes down to, uh, you know, at what point? And part of this, you know, gets crazy because when you then drill down even further, people then, because people haven't, they haven't had to think about it very much. It, it was just, it was a law. So why do I have to think about it? Like I'm either pro or against, blah, blah, blah. You know, what does it matter? And so, you know, it gets a little tricky, but at the same time, it's rather broad in Europe, uh, you know, you know, in, in, almost everywhere that broadly speaking, up until about 12 weeks, most relatively speaking are, you know, there is a majority that are like, nope, you know, uh, regardless of what's happening, you know, they're relatively okay with abortion. It's, you start going past 12 weeks to about 20 and people start getting really hazy. And, and it's, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it's religion, obviously. I mean, there, there are issues related to, I want to be very careful here because I keep using the term religion. And it, religion is not a carte blanche term here. <laughs> there are any number of religious people of various traditions. Uh, we've mentioned Judaism, we've mentioned any number. There are even evangelicals that have absolutely no problem, you know, with this. Uh, obviously they didn't have much, you know, as a group, they didn't have much problem, you know, 60 years ago. So, you know, this is a, you know, very specific uh, line of ideology that is having an issue. And, but even then, you know, secular people will will come down on this in very different ways. And part of it does come down to that question of viability. And this does. I mean, the, the issue of what is life actually is a question we're constantly in because we're literally looking for it in other planets. <laughs> so we actually do want to know what the, what the definition of it is. And so when does life start is actually a, is a derivation of that question. You know, it's a, it's in, what do we mean by it? I don't know. You know, there's the debate. There's the question. And so, you know, you know, of course, now every time I ask this, I can't help but think of Monty Python and every sperm is sacred song. Um, but, 
but it is, you know, but it is a question to, you know, start, you know, to for those that aren't just using it as a way of hiding uh, the fact that really what it is is just, you know, soul came in at inception, uh, you know, then, you know, we do want because we have issues around uh, autonomy all over the place. You know, legally speaking, you, you really can't just do anything you want with your body, no matter the circumstances. And the rub is figuring out what those limits are. And that's why we have a debate about it. Just figuring that out. And I and I also want to point out, like, we I don't want to vilify people that are pro-life because they they have come to their this this decision you know, maybe not for the best reasons, but to them, they, they were good reasons, you know, and I don't want to vilify them because that is taking away from the, what the real issue is. And it's just the ability for people to make their own choices about their lives and their healthcare. That is it. <sighs> That's what we're getting down to. And if we start lose, you know, not seeing the forest from the trees, you know, that's when things get messy. That's when we start not seeing people as people and we start just seeing them as a symbol of the thing that you are against against me. You are the symbol of the thing that I'm like, because I because, again, I've been guilty of this type of stuff and I'm trying to learn to be a better person because <laughs> I understand that it, these are because obviously i volunteer for this organization and people have been, been indoctrinated and when you've been indoctrinated it takes a lot to change people's minds the only difference is is that the government <laughs> is telling us what to do and not to do with our bodies and i i feel a little prickly about that <laughs> so i i understand the anger and the frustration and we want to loop everybody in and it does get nuanced and weird and i don't have answers for all the questions i contemplate this stuff all the time but what it when it comes down to brass tacks i cannot tell somebody else what to do with their own body and what they need for their life that is it and i don't think anybody else should tell another person what they need for their life and what's good for them and that's it that's it <laughs> Done. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. And you know, uh, that segues into another question uh, that someone was wondering about, um, which is, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, activism and voting and things people can do to support others. And those are all good things. Um, someone else was wondering, um, have any of y'all tried using street epistemology with pro-life supporters? And do you find that that is a helpful way to have these conversations with people? I have not, but I would be interested if 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 someone has. I think it uh, lends itself to it. This is such a volatile issue. I, I I would be interested to know if that if that could work. You know, how did you all of the pieces of street epistemology on identifying what we're talking about, and how did you arrive at your views? And could it be anything uh, wonderful things? But I haven't done it personally, so uh, maybe in the informal chat time, if someone has used that and had that kind of discussion, they could share it with us. Excellent. And, you know, before we do move into that informal chat time, is there anything else that, that any of y'all would like to mention before we do uh, go on to the hangout and, and wrap up here? 
All right, then hearing no objections, let's move on. Uh, we'll, we'll get ready to wrap up and then we will go into the hangout. Uh, so thank you all so much for being here to have this really important conversation this evening. I learned a lot. It was really good getting to hear so many different perspectives on this and, and to get to hear so much in the chat as well. So thank you everybody else who was participating in the conversation there too. And Kara, also, thank I, ju you. I just like to say thanks to our resource director who put some cool quotes up there. I was, uh, yes. some of them I weren't even aware, wasn't even aware of. That's great. Thanks. Uh, thanks. I Dan. wasn't either. Yeah, that was yeah. awesome. Yeah, I've been looking you. for those quotes. I copied them. So thank you. <laughs> that yeah. was great. Uh, yeah. I knew they existed. <laughs> yeah, we have the best resource director on the planet, the Smithsonian. We're trying to keep the Smithsonian from stealing them from us. So be careful. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was a wealth of information. So if you missed it, scroll back up in the chat. Um, and also thank you too to our amazing and wonderful troll stompers and hangout hosts and everybody else who is here helping us out. So Thank you, everyone, for participating in this. It is a team effort here. Recovering from Religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, Healing, and Support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There, you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering from Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering from Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.